so exciting. So, when it comes to the idea of secession, I should say that, first of all, where I'm sitting right now, it's a short, a medium-sized walk to what is probably the first place where secession was seriously contemplated in the history of the United States. That would have been in downtown Hartford, and uh, what we now call the Old State House, where the Hartford Convention was held. Uh, these were um, basically New England Federalists who were united in opposition to the War of 1812, not too happy with the Democratic-Republicans. Uh, and yeah, they really did talk about secession. It's hard to know how far it went or how how seriously to take it, but it was certainly there was secession in the air, shall we say? And they were even, you know, in some cases, some of them had talked about the practicalities of it, and some of the other ones have said, well, "We can't do that. We can't seize federal funds that we have and seize customs houses. We can't do that." But you know, New England—you don't think about New England as a place for that. Although, in 1977, the islands of Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket. Tucket, with a combined population of 6,000 people, actually voted to secede from the state of Massachusetts because they didn't like a redistricting plan that would re- reduce their representation in the state house. And it isn't New England exactly, but uh, Staten Island also tried to break away from New York City uh, in the 1980s. Uh, and early 1990s, there was a 1993 referendum, 65% voted to secede. Implementation was blocked in the state assembly. So, you know, I mean, we're going to talk about secession writ pretty large on this show and also towards the end, writ very small. But don't imagine that secession is such an incredibly far-fetched thing that it's not worth talking about. Uh, and to, uh, to hammer that point home uh, is our main guest on the show today. He'll be with us for the first two segments, Francis H. Buckley, a foundation professor at the Antonin Scalia Law School and George Mason University, as well as senior editor at the American Spectator and a columnist for the New York Post. If you're probably kind of picking up the idea, he's probably a little bit on the conservative side. Uh, His latest book is American Succession, The Looming Threat of a National Breakup. Uh, Francis H. Buckley, welcome to our show. And we have him via Skype, but I'm not hearing him right now. So uh, let's sort of try to figure out what's going on with that. Uh, You guys will let me know uh, when he's ready to go. I will also say, I'll say a couple more things just while we figure out where Francis H. Buckley is. Um, While eulogizing John Brown in 1859, just, I mean, obviously the most notorious case of secession would be the Civil War. I, I hope we all know that and agree about this. So while eulogizing John Brown in 1859, uh, William Lloyd Garrison, the abolitionist, so this is the other side, he called for the northern states to secede from the Union because he believed it was hopelessly corrupted by slavery. Um, and uh, so he said, by the dissolution of the union, we shall give the finishing blow to the slave system. Obviously, that's not what happens. Uh, but these things, these things, they come from different quadrants. They come from different areas. And obviously, also, globally, we're going through a period of things that are identifiable as secession. So you've got Brexit, obviously. You've also got a Scottish independence movement, uh, which is newly revived now that Brexit is firmly and finally implemented. Um, You've got the Catalonian uh, secession movement in Spain. You've got Hong Kong with an independence movement. And one of the things that's going to be a little bit difficult to parse here also is what counts as 
secession? Is separatism the same as secession? We have a lot of questions that we need to get answered, and I think we've decided not to get those questions answered on Skype. So joining us right now, the aforementioned Francis H. Buckley. His latest book is American Secession, The Looming Threat of a National Breakup. Welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. So um, let's maybe just begin with the thing that everybody says when we mention to them that we're doing this show. Not everybody, but they say it's impossible, right? It's illegal. It's impossible. It can't happen in the United States for for reasons having to do with law. So what's the answer to that? Well, uh, there really are a number of ways in which it could happen. I mean, I, my book was kind of a how-to guide <laughs> as to what might happen. And look, we've been through, you know, two secessions. 1776 was a secession. Mm-hmm. That was a good one. Uh, 1861, not so good. And there are secession movements all over the world, and we're really over big and kind of ripe for it. So, you know, if push came to shove, you know, what you would expect would be one state. I mean, imagine a state like, Oregon after, let us say, Trump gets reelected and gets a couple more seats in the Supreme Court. And people in Oregon say, well, that's it. We're out of here. And the rest of the country says something like, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Uh, That would just begin a process of negotiations. And look, you know, I moved here from Canada, so I saw all this. And, and you, you know, you'd be surprised how quickly it just comes at you. I mean, at one moment, you know, People in Canada are saying, hey, we should prosecute this guy for sedition. And then, whoa, it's right, you know, it's, it's right on you. And, you know, if this went to the Supreme Court, as inevitably it would, they'd probably look at how Canada solved this or tried to solve it. And, and what the Supreme Court there said is, you know, one of the fundamental norms of our Constitution is democracy. And if you have a, a clear democratic vote for secession. That's got to be respected. But that doesn't mean, you know, you get the right to leave the country. That just begins negotiations because there are things like who gets, you know, the uh, who gets federal property and how do we divide up the federal debt? And, uh, you know, inevitably that would lead to a longer conversation, probably in the form of an Article 5 convention, you know. And uh, and that would be a perfectly legal way of doing it. All right. So uh, there are, you know, are active secession movements around the United States, the Republican Repu- Republic of Alaska, something called New Africa, uh, Hawaiian sovereignty, Northwest Territorial Imperative. I could go on and on. But since you mentioned Oregon, let's talk about the Cascadia Independence Movement. Uh, this doesn't just include Oregon. It includes Washington and parts of your former uh, homeland of Canada. Tell us more about that. What is proposed there? Well, it's uh, I mean. It's kind of a work in progress. I mean, they've got their own uh, national anthem, which is kind of yucky. <laughs> and they've got, they've got plans for a greater Oregon, which would include parts of, of Idaho. And meanwhile, eastern Oregon, which is conservative, is talking about breaking away from the Pacific Coast, which is very liberal. So, you know, one thing that could happen in all of this would be an acceleration of split-ups within a country. Uh you know, Oregon being one example. Another would be uh, California. They got CalExit. Um, you know, the CalExit movement kind of had a problem when one of one of its founders moved to Russia. I mean, right. I, you know, 
And actually, we're we're gonna deal we're gonna deal in the second segment very specifically. We're gonna have you and somebody from Calix that really kind of oh, okay. zero in on that. So let's let's park that one for a second right now. Well, you know, if there if these movements are afoot, why are they afoot? I mean, uh, you know, why in 2020 would there be a bunch of different potentially secessionist movements afoot in the land? You know, one of the big reasons is we're just too darn big as a country. I mean, when we got started in 1787, there was a big debate about the optimal size of a country. And the side that won was the smallest, beautiful crowd. And that gave us, you know, federalism, uh, you know, a, a very, you know, strong kind of federalism where the states had a lot of power. But so here we are, you know, 230 years later, and the federal footprint is just so much bigger. So there's that going on. I mean, when you try to make rules for an entire country out of Washington, it's just, you know, it's not going to work very well. Plus, there's something else. And, you know, the reason why I would see secession coming from liberal states is 2016 was kind of a psychic wound for a lot of people. Now, you know, if we're divided now, imagine where we'd be in a year's time if Trump is reelected and you get a couple more seats in the Supreme Court. At, you know, at, at that point, it, it really might become, uh, you know, levered up a whole lot. Right. And I think there's also a sense, an accompanying sense right now uh, among the kind of people that you're talking about, the kind of people who might fuel that sort of sentiment. There's kind of a sense of institutional failure, right? There's a way in which an attempt to discipline the president didn't work all that well. Subpoenas are not working all that well. The judicial confirmation process has been called into question. Merrick Garland didn't get called. You know, there's a lot of that kind of stuff. and, And underlying that is a fundamental distrust of certain tenets of the Constitution. The Senate seems malproportioned to a lot of people. So is that sort of what you're talking about, sort of a sense that we we don't even believe that the institutions we have work the way we were taught in eighth grade? Yeah, well, I, I completely agree. Look, uh, you know, so I say I moved here from Canada. I've written a book about the superiority of parliamentary government. Uh, you don't have the gridlock problem there. You pass laws, and if they don't work, you repeal them. And that, you know, it doesn't work so well here. It's hard to do stuff, and once you do it, uh, it's impossible to repeal. It's the laws of the Medes and the Persians. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think we do a lot better with a parliamentary regime, but but if it worked, you know, it worked for 200 years here, and it worked because we pretty much agreed uh, for much of our history on most things, obviously not always. But, you know, throughout the 20th century, there was kind of a broad agreement. And as many bills were passed in periods of divided government as, you know, as passed when one party had all three branches. So but that's changed now. And, and that's a symptom of, be, of the problem of bigness. And part of the problem of bigness is when you have a country of 330 million people, you're going to have people with widely different beliefs. And, and that means that means gridlock. You know, let's hear, uh, Kat uh, and Frank, what those widely different beliefs sound like. Let's hear some of the voices of secession. If people at home in Texas were to want to secede from the United States, would you feel the same way and say if they want to do it, they should? Texas would never do that if I'm president. What about Vermont? Vermont It's very American to talk about secession. That's how we came into being. Thirteen colonies seceded 
from the British. So secession is a very much of an American principle. Uh, asserting sovereignty of a state is essential to put our country back on the right track. Is a date set for secession yet? Um, the fact of the matter is we are very proud of our Texas history and uh, people discuss and debate the issues of uh, can we break ourselves into five states? Can we succeed? What about all the strong endorsements we have given of those republics that seceded from the Soviet system? We were delighted with this. We never said, oh, no, secession is treasonous. No, secession is a good principle. So some of those voices, you probably heard President Trump declaring Texas would never secede uh, and, and neither would Vermont. And then you heard Ron Paul, Rick Perry, Greg Abbott. Um, so this is an interesting part of this, Frank, is that secession doesn't necessarily seem secession itself as an idea doesn't have a politics. I, you might not have heard me say this at the beginning, but 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 uh, William Lloyd Garrison at the time leading up to the Civil War was suggesting that the North ought to secede because the country was hopelessly corrupted by uh, by slavery. There, there's a way in which secession fits into a more of a psychology than a partisanship? Yeah, it, it is that. By the way, those voices, uh, I was listening and I, I thought, boy, who are these bozos? And now you tell me it's our <laughs> <laughs> Well, of course, I should have guessed. Um, yeah, you know, it's psychic more it's psychological more than anything. I mean, in you know what really influenced me? I read James Buchanan's last State of the Union message, and, you know, you universally considered one of our worst presidents. But what he said made a lot of sense. What he said to the South is, look, hey, things are great. We had a great harvest. Uh, you guys have no right to secede, and you have no reason because no country better protects slavery. And he was right there. Um, but nevertheless, you want to do it, and I don't get it. So what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to send in the army? Uh, I think that if it comes to the point where the only thing that keeps us together is the army, uh, you know, I don't want to go there. And uh, that made a lot of sense. So, by the way, if this ended up before the Supreme Court now, I think they'd hesitate before they give whoever the president is effectively a loaded pistol. You know, we don't we, we don't it, it wouldn't be war. Mm hmm. You know, I think we went through this in Quebec, and what the Anglos in Quebec objected to was something called Bill 101, which was kind of a, you know, francophone triumphalism. And the Anglos called it Bill 401, which is the name of the highway between Toronto and Montreal. So, <laughs> you know, what happened is like 300,000 English speakers moved to Toronto, you know, where they wouldn't have biculturalism and they wouldn't have good bagels, but hell, they were going to move. So, you know, if, if this sort of thing happened, expect that what we'd see would be what we're seeing now is sorting out of people between California and Texas and so on. So, you know, buy stock in U-Haul is my recommendation. Right. And actually, the bagels are currently threatened by the anti-fireplace smoke uh, laws anyway. Who knows Who knows how much longer that's going to last in Montreal? Um, so uh, let's just sort of game this out a little bit more legally. For example, is there a legal or constitutional mechanism for secession? It seemed as though the Supreme Court ruled decisively that there wasn't, but your book seems to entertain the possibility that there still might be. Well, that was a decision in 1869 when the war was good and over. And, and you know, if the thing arose uh, before secession happened, and the question was, do we want another Abraham Lincoln? Uh, I think the Supreme Court might back off. Besides that, that decision in 1869 was premised on the belief that the Articles of Confederation were binding. 
And if the Articles of Confederation were binding, then George Washington was illegally elected president in 1789 because the last state to agree to, to ratify the new constitution was in 1790. So <laughs> I think the originalists on the court, in short, would look at what the framers were all about. And what the framers were saying in Philadelphia in 1787 was, hey, we could split apart. No big deal. We could go into three countries. Everybody thought secession within America at that point, within the 13 colonies, was very possible. So, you know, when we think about secession, when we think about American secession, yeah, our main uh, blueprint or, or at least our main template is what did happen during the war between the states. There's uh, this, the American Civil War. That's sort of what triggered the whole thing. Um, and and now we, when we think about secession movements, we th- think about, for the most part, kind of smaller ones. We're going to talk in the second segment about California possibly withdrawing. We're going to uh, th- there are other regional ones and small ones that involve individual states. But is there a potential way that the country could have what was effectively an amicable divorce? I mean, would it be possible either legally or politically for the very red states to hive themselves off and the very blue states to hive themselves off? And then there's two countries and everybody's pretty happy. Yeah, I think it is possible. You know, it's very possible in the same way it might happen in other countries in, uh, you know, kind of a, uh, a polite or quiet or velvet secession of the kind they had in Czechoslovakia. Uh, you know, one of the differences right now, thankfully, is the civil rights revolution has taken hold. So one thing that wouldn't happen would be in, you know, in a state like Texas, would be a uh, move back to Jim Crow or anything like that. I mean, so the stakes are a lot lower now, and that makes it easier. On the other hand, the federal footprint is so big that makes the session harder. Uh, I mean, it really would it really would require uh, extensive negotiations between the parties. One thing that might happen that I end you know I ended up talking about at the end of my book would be. Um, Kind of a renewal of federalism. I called it home rule, what the Brits offered the Irish in the 1880s, you know, uh, an acknowledgement that different states might want to go different ways in a variety of issues that, that, that don't threaten the existence, the continued existence of the United States. You know, I mean, you know, we don't want to have to get a passport to visit Disneyland, <laughs> right? But then again, if you're in the, if you're in the Schengen uh, zone in, in Europe, and you're French and you want to go to Italy, you don't need a passport. And we don't want to have customs barriers. But then again, if, if what you want is a customs union, that's not a nation. You know, that's like NAFTA. But, you know, but, but there are things like that we'd want that uh, we could do while still tolerating greater differences between people in different states. Well, and, and in part because the stakes are lower. It seems as though we experiment with that. I want to come back to what you mean by the stakes are lower in just a second, but it seems like we experiment with that all the time. For example, right now there's a tremendous amount of tension between states that contain sanctuary cities, states who have overall even a statewide immigration policy that radically differs from the uh, immigration policies of the Trump administration. The Trump administration's response right now has been, among other things, to cancel global entry programs for the state of New York, but even more significantly, they're talking about with 
withholding other kinds of criminal justice funding from those states that have a different immigration policy. You don't follow our rules. You don't get this other kind of crime fighting money. So, I mean, maybe ideally what we want to have is a republic that's elastic enough so that you can go your own way on certain things, effectively nullify or have home rule over ideas, federal ideas that are repugnant to you. But but as we look at it in play, I mean, I don't know, how elastic, Frank, are we really? Yeah, well, immigration is a good issue. Uh, what's going on in California right now, the sanctuary state idea, is what James Madison called interposition, and he thought it was great. I mean, he thought that if a state thinks that what the feds are doing is crazy, the state should have a role in kind of doing whatever they could to block the federal law legally within their state. So we've got a a, a real history of that sort of stuff going on. Um, And mind you, immigration's a tough one, because if you're an immigrant to California, you're an immigrant to the United States. So they have this in Canada. Quebec has its own immigration policies. Uh, But, you know, when you get into the details of how it works, it's really pretty complicated. Um, When you said when you said before, you used that phrase a couple of times, the stakes are lower. What do you mean the stakes are lower? Well, I'd like to think that the civil rights, you know, people who might object to, say, Texas, Texas secession might think, oh, my God, they're going to go back to slavery. Well, no. Okay. Not only that, they wouldn't be going back to Jim Crow, all right? I mean, we've had a real sea change in the way we think about basic policy issues since over the last 50 years. Thankfully, and I don't think, I don't see any movement anywhere apart from utter crazies to change that. I mean, uh, that certainly doesn't describe Texas, okay? Um, So there are differences, but it's not like 1861 in that sense. So, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm happy there was a civil war that ended slavery, as painful as that was. But I don't see the call for anything like that right now or any concern about that sort of thing uh, like 1861. We we should say, if we haven't said it already, that despite having written, in, in your words, uh, a book that provides a blueprint, blueprint for secession, you don't like the idea of secession, right? You don't think that's, a, in fact, a particularly healthy path for this nation to go down. No, I'm nostalgic for an earlier period in American history where we all came together. I mean, there was a, a tr- tremendous sense of that after 9-11. And for most of our history, the idea of secession would have been, you know, most of the 20th century would have been utterly nuts. We had a strong sense that America was united and that we were a good country. And one of the things that's happened is the idea that we're a good country is is under attack from a lot of people, the cancel culture. So, you know, if you buy the idea that, you know, that America is basically a vicious country, I don't know why you'd want to be a part of it. And if you think that the other people in America are basically deplorables, why would you want to live in the same country as them? Right. I, it, it seems as though the, the larger stressor may be, you know, we talked about uh, a distrust of federal institutions or a notion that federal institutions don't work right now. And we're about to go through another set of stress tests. I mean, either the federal government will be able to respond meaningfully and effectively uh, to coronavirus or COVID-19 or not. And states may ultimately decide, wow, this this they can't even protect our health as well as we'd like to 
like to do that. We think on a, on a smaller level, you know, you said at the beginning, we're over large. Well, it's hard to police a virus over such a huge landscape with so many different kinds uh, of places in it. You know, it might be easier to keep coronavirus out of New England or, or Cascadia. Uh, there are ways in which we have other common enemies uh, that are not like 9-11, not like the Cold War, but common enemies that may suggest to us we're better off being smaller. Well, we're better off being smaller in a couple of respects. I mean, uh, I haven't heard conservatives making much noise about secession, but there are a whole bunch of conservatives who worry about the extent of the regulatory state. And what they're talking about is the Code of Federal Regulations. So, you know, uh, secession within a state would be something like Brexit. You'd get out of, you know, all the all the regulations Britain's complained about from, from Brussels. Um, you'd also, you know, there also are conservatives who worry about corruption in government. There are a lot of Americans who worry about corruption in government. But what they're talking about is K Street in Washington. They're not talking about Dover, Delaware. Now, you've got some libertarians, and, boy, you know, in Quebec, a lot of libertarians thought the idea of getting rid of one entire level of government at a crack that would be just great. So, you know, there, there, there would be a constituency for this. Uh, and that, you know, then you have some people who rail about uh, what they regard as the excesses of liberalism within their community, which is not something that you can blame the feds on over much. Um, but nevertheless, you know, that's that's a problem of bigness when you try to put everybody together. I mean, somehow it all worked out in Canada in the in the end. I mean, a lot mm-hmm. of compromises were made. And, you know, maybe we had too many, uh, you know, lovers in common with people on the other side or just, you know, I had plenty of colleagues who were separatists and we were, you know, we we're going to get along. Period. Right. Uh, All right. I don't see that now. You, you, you know, even dating apps. Are <laughs> right. But and, and it turns out national anthems in the case of Cascadia. All right. We're going to grab a quick break here. Uh, we've got Francis H. Buckley with us. We're going to be joined by a proponent of California secession. Marcus Ruiz Evans will join me and Frank Buckley right after this. Is tradition continuity. I pity the country. I pity the state. All right, uh, we're back. Uh, first of all, thanks to Josh Nalea, the producer of this episode. Cat Pastor is on the board, making everything sound great. Uh, tomorrow, our cultural roundtable, The Nose, will re-coalesce here on the air. We've been to see the movie. We will have been to see the movie Knives Out, which is kind of enjoying a second life right now. We'll be talking about that and the proverbial other things. All right, so uh, Francis H. Uh, Buckley is here with us, foundation professor at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. His latest book is American Session, the looming threat of a national breakup. Breakup. Joining us now uh, is Marcus Ruiz Evans, co-founder of the Yes California movement, the largest and most widely known community of activists who believe that California should be an independent country. He is the author of California's Next Century. So I'm going to start with you, uh, Marcus Ruiz Evans. Uh, maybe just explain what Yes California is and how it got that name. Uh, yes, California is the idea that California would be better. As a, uh, first, thank you for letting me come on. Professor, great to speak to you again. I really appreciated our interview before. And thank you for personally acknowledging our movement in your book on page 19. Really appreciate it. To answer your question, Yes, California was originally called Sovereign California. It goes back to 2014. 2014, when Obama was around, 
bunch of Californians thought, you know what, we're a donor state. And we're held back by trade deals. There was another professor who pointed that out. We'd be better off independent. Trump got elected. We really grew very large. Um, and the year before that, we changed our name to Yes, California, so that we could literally copy the Scottish um, uh, vote for devolution. So we took the Yes Scotland campaign. After it ended, they, they didn't care who, who used it. So we took the color scheme, the names, et cetera, and tried to attach ourselves to that. We did that right before Trump got big. Uh, or elected, and our movement exploded by 3,000% within, uh, I think, three days, the moment he elected. But we were here when Obama was around, saying the same thing. Never so, changed our message. Right. So you so you guys, California's in an unusual position, right? You're the fifth largest economy in the world. You're, you have more economic punch than France. You have a population larger than Poland. Uh, there's a way in which you are plausibly a country, uh, but you're also plausibly and historically part of the, the U.S. What, what's, what would be the trigger here? What would be the reason why you would want to be a separate entity? Well, first, we lose money. So just, I, I'm imagining I'm speaking to a somewhat conservative audience. California is a donor state. I know a lot of people don't think that. We are. We lose about $30 billion certain years in the past on a good year, around 2005 when our economy was doing great. We lose about $100 billion that we got nothing for. Additionally, we don't get our fair amount of federal revenue that is paid for us. So people talk about how we have a huge amount of the homeless. Um, I think a third to 50%. We do not get our equivalent amount of what's known as McKinney-Vento Federal Homeless Assistance Funding. We get a fraction. So we get a fifth when we get a third of the problem. So, A, we're losing money paying to 25 states that we get nothing for. The services that we do get, we don't get our fair allotment. Additionally, we don't have our fair amount of representation in the House of Representatives. We should have actually more and technically more electoral college votes. So. We're disenfranchised there. And as Professor Abraham Lowenthal said in Global California, we're held back in trade deals. California's independent. Uh, it goes around the world, makes these trade deals, and then we've got to go back to the federal government and get permission. Governor Schwarzenegger, Republican, criticized both Republican President W. Bush and Democratic President Barack Obama for doing the exact same thing, holding California businesses back from being able to sell products to customers and make money, we lose billions of dollars there. So we're ahead of America in international trade and regulation. It's holding us back. We lose billions. We lose billions as a donor state. We don't get a fair amount of revenue. And we're kind of trash-talked routinely. I mean, Fox <laughs> News has done a survey. I, I mean, it is a little funny, but Fox News does a survey every couple of years, going back to 2012, where they say, who would you like to get kicked out of America? Guess who's number one? Every single time. Well, so to that point, and by the way, uh, Marcus, I just want to say, you're on a public radio station in Connecticut, so chances are you're not speaking to a conservative audience. But anyway, um, okay. the um, sure. let, me, let me go back over to Frank here, because, you know, so Frank Buckley, per the remarks he just cited from Fox News, I mean, if California wanted to secede and could, in fact, effectively secede, I mean, the people standing up and clapping would probably... Probably be the people. Well, we would probably start with President Trump, right? Nobody would be happier to see them go. <laughs> well, that's that's very possible. I mean, you take a look at the electoral map and say, you know, Sayonara. Uh, there's uh, the economic issues are really important. Um, 
when there was a Quebec secession movement, the Federalists in Quebec noted that Quebec was a net recipient of federal money. And so they came up with a slogan of profitable federalism. And so what Marcus is talking about, and by the way, good to talk to you again, Marcus. What Marcus is talking about is profitable secession, right? And I'll add one other thing to it. Um, You know, we've got this huge military, and there was a popular reaction against this in 2006, the congressional in 2016. Um, And, you know, and what are we getting for it? I mean, do we really need to spend all that money to protect America? California doesn't. And using numbers provided by the L.A. Times, I calculated that if California could zero out its share of the military budget, that would be enough to fund a national health scheme in California. So you put that deal to California voters, and I would think they'd be tempted. Well, we'll find out whether they're tempted, right, Marcus? uh, There's going to be uh, a referendum, what, the day after Election Day in 2020? Is that how this works? Yeah, we filed about 10 initiatives here in California trying to prove that you can legally move to be a nation within the law, proving that point. They've been doing that since 2014. It's about 47 days average time for when you file to get approval. That means August 31st, 2020, we file. And November, the day after Trump is reelected, which we predicted, uh, the initiative will be here to secede. I got to point out something that I talked to the professor about. And this is the big secret in the room. Maybe, hopefully, the show can get the news out. The reason that Californians aren't talking about CalExit more, they don't think conservatives and Americans will let them go. They're told by L.A. Times and San Francisco Chronicle that people throughout America love us and would be weeping in the streets if we left. Now, when I talk to Professor Buckley and other conservatives, they laugh at that and they go, of course you could get the votes tomorrow. So if somebody could prove, say, Donald Trump, say, the Republican senator, yeah, California, you could get the votes. I got to tell you, it'll be a media spectacle here in California because the liberal newspapers will be called on their heads and Californians will be going, hold on, you'll just let us go? Well, that's <laughs> not what we were told by all of our experts. And watch how quickly we're ready to go because January, February 2017, two surveys, again, never mentioned by the news. It wasn't just a third of Californians that said, I want us to see today. It was 475 47.5, according to Reuters, Ipsos, and Stanford, January 2017, essentially half said, I'm open to this idea. Both of those surveys undercounted Latinos by 50%. You actually match that to the demographics, it's 55% of Californians, according to two reputable surveys, January 2017 said, I'm willing to talk to get out. Brexit passed with a 52% vote threshold. All right. Before we run out of time, Marcus, before we run out of time, I want to ask you about your feelings about what we might call the rest of us. So let's say that California secedes and there's minimal amount of resistance on the part of the federal government. That leaves a United States of America minus California with a pretty heavy imbalance now of electoral votes and U.S. Senate seats uh, that are Republicans slash conservative. So in a way, by doing this, you would be effectively dooming anybody who was a blue state or dooming anybody who was a Democrat to live in what is now a highly conservative country. Um, How do you feel about that? It's misinformation. It's totally wrong. So that's out in the news a lot. What a lot of people ignore is the Electoral College votes of California don't just go into a vacuum. They're redistributed based upon population. I encourage everybody, 
Look at the top 10 states based upon population. One-third are red, one-third are blue, one-third are independent. That means competition still exists, and nothing will change if California leaves. The news will not acknowledge that the electoral votes don't just go into a vacuum. They're redistributed based upon population. The formula's out there. I don't know why no one in the news will point that out. Seems kind of obvious to me. So let me go back to Frank Buckley about that then. How do you see that question, that question of what happens when a state like California, which typically represents a big part of the democratic power in the United States, uh, what happens when it goes its own way? Well, um, Marcus is right in the way by virtue of the Electoral College. The uh, the electoral stake isn't as big as all that. But I, I want to take issue uh, with something Marcus said. I don't think a state has a right to secede. And when the Quebecers were proposing uh, an exit option, they called it sovereignty association. So what they said is, look, we recognize we just don't have a right to secede. We recognize that if we want out, what we have to do is start talking about how to divide up the public debt and, you know, and and, uh, federal property and so on. So all of that would be on the table before there is really an acknowledgement of, 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 of secession. You see, if California voters voted to secede, the votes of Americans in the rest of the country count, too. So you'd have to take that into account. I don't think that fits neatly in a referendum question, but, you know, nevertheless, you'd start with a process of negotiations, and, and heavens knows where that would go. So, uh, Marcus, I'm running out of time here, but so another scenario is you try this, you get it right up to the brink, and it fails. And now you've got a state that attempted to leave the union, didn't make it all the way out, still is in the union, and and let's say that President Trump or or Donald Trump Jr., or I don't know who's going to be president at that point in the, the conversation, but you've got a situation where a secessionist movement didn't work. What Are there fears among Californians about reprisals in that kind of a situation? Uh, no, because we think it would work. So no one in our movement said, let's just unilaterally secede. We looked at Texas versus White, the only Supreme Court case on secession, and said with consent of the states you could do it. That's why I'm saying on, uh, to the professor and to you, we think conservatives will give us the votes. If Donald Trump just went out there and led the Republican Senate and said, let's talk about if we'd be willing to go. We have permission in the Congress, a majority vote threshold, at least in the Senate and the presidency, to get out. Erwin Chermerinsky, the top professor of constitutional law in California, said a simple majority vote of Congress would be enough to qualify the Texas versus white threshold and allow California to legally secede. Those votes are there. Americans aren't aware that Californians are that willing to go, and Californians have been lied to that we can't get the votes. All right. Well, there's only one way to find this out, and we can't do it here on the show, uh, but it uh, is waiting for us somewhere down the road of history. For now, because we're going to switch gears here a little bit, we're going to go to a break. break. I have to thank Francis H. Buckley uh, from the Antonin Scalia Law School of George Mason University. His book is American Secession, The Looming Threat of a National Breakup. Marcus Ruiz Evans is the co-founder of the Yes California Movement. Let's take a break and come back. We will talk about what well, you might call it micro-secession. No doubt about his intent Resist, brother, resist He is for some 
Well, I talked at the beginning about how there have been kind of miniature secession movements, uh, things like Martha's Vineyard in Nantucket proposing to secede from Massachusetts, uh, Staten Island trying to secede from uh, New York City. But it could get even smaller than that. Uh, for example, maybe the, a bunch of anti-vaccine people will want to secede. You have the People's Republic, the People's Republic of, of Measles, but probably not. And probably it's going to break down among, in fact, lines that have to do with where people go to school and what kind of schools they go to, just in a different way. Joining us is Erica Frankenberg, professor of education and demography in the College of Education at Penn State University, focusing on racial desegregation and inequality in K-12 schools. Erica Frankenberg, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me join you. So this is this is not a theoretical conversation about whether or not school districts can secede, so to speak, whether school districts can differently constitute themselves. This is something that happens. Explain to us how and why it happens. Right. In fact, um, we have been studying this uh, recent secession since 2000, looking at where this is happening and what the impact is. And we've seen uh, about 50 districts have seceded just since the year 2000, including a number clustered in the South, where we see that usually the communities that are seceding are forming their own separate school district from a larger countywide district, um, are, tend to be more, uh, have a higher white percentage and are more economically advantaged. So and, and explain maybe how does this process get initiated? In other words, how, um, maybe even just take, take one of the examples you've studied. Uh, and we should say that more than 70 communities since 2000 have tried to secede and nearly 50 have succeeded in seceding. Give, give us a sense. How does, how, how does the ramp up to this go? Yeah, I, I got interested in this first because this was actually a, a process I saw starting in the county that I grew up in. I, I was educated in Mobile County Public Schools in Alabama, and um, one of the things that I knew from the research literature is that school desegregation was enabled in part by the courts there, but also in part by having a county that contained both the city, which was more had higher percentage of black students in the surrounding county, uh, with white students, and so that enabled the schools to mix them. I saw this white community uh, that was now looking to form its own school district, and what happens is this is sometimes initiated by the mayor, business leaders who see this sometimes as almost an economic development issue for a community that uh, having your own municipal schools will allow you to decide what kind of resources you put into it. Depending on the tax base in your community, it might mean that you're able to allocate more resources to schools. And so so it can be um, something that at least looks to be attractive for these community leaders. The state and each state has its own laws in terms of which um, communities are eligible, under what conditions, what the process is. Typically, there's a consultant that's engaged to try to say, yes, you have money to support this. And so that's kind of how the process goes. It has kind of a pull the ladder up feeling to it. And we should say that here in Connecticut, it would probably be impossible simply because we have a constitutional, an unusual state constitutional mandate uh, for the provision of education. That's occasioned uh, two or three of these landmark lawsuits like Chef versus O'Neill uh, that argue effectively that students in cities who aren't getting the same education deserve the same education. But, but apparently so. And that, so that's 
Erica, that's the reality that I know. <laughs> Apparently, in a, lots of other states, it's okay to begin having this conversation. What if we could give this one group of presumably considerably more affluent students a much better education, declare them a school district of winners, and presumably Im- implicitly declare other school districts districts of losers in this equation? I mean, first of all, am I seeing it wrong? Do I have my Connecticut goggles on so that I'm missing something here? Well, uh, I will point out one thing for, for Northerners to consider, including people in Connecticut, is that to some extent these boundary lines that are being constructed in the South um, separating communities have already occurred in places like Connecticut. You know, each municipality, I believe, in Connecticut is able to have its own school district. I know I'm in Pennsylvania. There are 500 school districts here. Uh, I think in New Jersey, there's over 600. And, you know, New Jersey is not a huge state, right? In Alabama, even with a secession, there's still under 140 school districts. And so so I think that's one important thing just to clarify that to some extent, these boundary lines already exist in the North. And those are really important for us to think about the implications of them. And certainly Connecticut, because of Chef, the Chef case, has been thinking about them. But I think your other point about what are the implications for drawing these new boundary lines on along boundaries that oftentimes correspond with race and class, and then what that means in terms of the resources we provide, the way in which residential sorting then takes place, those are really serious for us to consider. Um, there is a very colorblind ideal, individualistic ideology that underlies them that says that um, I want to provide my resources to support schools for kids that look like me, rather than thinking about the entire region's children as those who are deserving the same type of educational opportunity. And so those are really important implications for us because of the role that public schools play in educating future citizens and workers for our democracy. So one of the places that this is unfolded in different ways, one of the states where this is un- unfolded in different ways is in Tennessee, where you've got both situations in Chattanooga uh, and in Memphis. And, and, and these may be somewhat different stories. Uh, on the other hand, once again, these do seem to be stories about sort of new predominantly white and affluent school systems being formed uh, in a way that would exclude people from other kinds of realities. Absolutely. And and what we see that is, is really important for us to understand is the framing that these communities are using to try to justify the the reasons for seceding, the reasons they're justifying both to local residents and actually Memphis suburban Memphis folks went to the state legislature to change the state law to permit the suburban secessions to occur. And so there is this new ideology um, that has particular resonance in our sort of post-racial society that allows us to justify these moves in terms of local control, which, you know, it's really hard to argue with on some level if we don't think seriously about the fact that white affluent residents exercising local control can mean that other residents aren't able to have the similar kind of local control, um, but may have the same desires for educating their own kids. And so one of the things that we've really been studying, in addition to the, you know, empirical impact on segregation, both in schools and also in residential patterns, 
is to try to understand how communities talk about this and really unpacking if they're talking about local control as a justification, what does that mean? And a lot of times we find that there's not really a coherent understanding about what local control is um, that is tied to education, per se. So this is probably going to be the last question. We're just running, unfortunately, out of time. So, Matt, we've been spending a lot of time earlier on the show talking about different kinds of, you know, pretty extreme scenarios. Let's imagine that Elizabeth Warren gets elected president in the United States, beefs up the Office of Civil Rights within the U.S. Education Department and says, I, I got a bunch of lawyers who are going to say, you just can't do that. You, you know, that you're fundamentally violating some kind of federal covenant to provide equal education. You can't do that. Does that change some of these situations that you've covered? Would they be vulnerable to federal action? Uh, you're going to have to answer in about 45 seconds, unfortunately. Sure. I think one of the suggestions that I have is that we would simply review proposed sessions for potential segregation impacts. So, we would have the Office of Civil Rights and then the Elizabeth Warren's um, Department of Education review every secession before it's allowed to take place. There was a 2018 example in which the federal courts refused to allow one secession in Alabama to take place. And I think that kind of model is a really good one for us to think about nationally. All right. We're going to have to stop there, but thanks very much for this. Yes, there are school districts that effectively secede uh, from their existing framework. Erica Frankenberg, professor of education and demography in the College of Education at Penn State University, focusing on racial de- uh, desegregation and inequality in K-12 through schools, has been our guest to talk about that. And thanks once again to Josh Nalea.